Okay, Genesis chapter 1, uh, uh, look at verse 26, that's where we're going to begin this morning, Genesis 1, 26, and let's uh, bow together in prayer and ask God to guide us in this study. Lord, thank you so much for this study of marriage as we seek to understand your design, your desire. You've given us a great relationship, the relationship of marriage for our good. And help us to understand how we can benefit from what you built into this great relationship. Marriage, it's what brings us together today as uh, we're going to talk about uh, God's intent for the marriage relationship and uh, talk about uh, what it is that interfered with God's intent, what it is that interfered and caused marriage to be something that became difficult rather than the kind of one flesh relationship, the kind of oneness uh, of two people that God desired. So that's where we are this morning. That's what we're going to be looking at. Uh, a couple of things. We're going we're gonna to look at marriage as God designed it, especially from uh, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, and chapter 2, verse 24, which many uh, commentators call the twin pillars of marriage the twin pillars of marriage. Uh, right from the very beginning, we have the marriage relationship. So we're going to look at how God designed marriage. And then secondly, uh, we're going to look at along the way what went wrong. Uh, what happened? What came into uh, the marriage relationship? What came into the world that caused uh, difficulty, not just between man and wife, but between one person and another person? We're going to look at that. Before we do that, I want to look at two things. First of all, I want to look at our, uh, some thoughts about marriage, about the flaws in our view of marriage that are expressed by Larry Crabb in his book, The Marriage Builder. It's an excellent book. It's a little older book now, but he names four flaws in our view of marriage. Uh, I only have time to look at two of them. So, okay, there are four altogether. Um, if you want the other two, uh, I'll get you the other two. But for this morning, I only have time to look at two. And I think they were true when he wrote the book, and they're still true today. The first of the two flaws is this. We have an emphasis today and have been and have had for some time an emphasis on becoming happy and fulfilled rather than an emphasis on a need to develop a holy, obedient walk with God. We neglect to see that God choose, chooses the marriage relationship as a way for us to grow close to Him, as a way for us to grow in obedience to Him, as a way for us to grow in holiness. It's not just about our happiness. It's not just about us being fulfilled but it's about fulfilling what God desires for us. Fulfilling what God desires in our lives. In his book, The Sacred Marriage, Gary Larson asked the question, what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? What if God designed marriage more to make us holy than to make us happy? You see, somebody switched the price tags. Somebody changed the tape at the end of the race 
and made our goal in marriage to be fulfilled and to be happy. And hopefully those things happen in our marriages and happen in our lives. And I believe they can happen. I believe we can be happy. I believe we can be fulfilled. But I also believe that to do that, we have to follow God's pattern. To do that, we have to follow God's way and God's will. And so that was one of the four flaws that he mentioned that I want to mention to us this morning. The second flaw of four, and I'm only mentioning two, I just want to repeat that, uh, is that psychological needs replace fidelity to Scripture in our culture today. Even among Christians, and maybe I might say especially among Christians, Psychological needs replace fidelity to Scripture. The Bible becomes an optional guidebook to our lives instead of essential to our lives. The Bible speaks about every important thing in life and every important relationship in life and gives us the guidelines to, to fulfilling all that He desires for us. And yet we consider it optional as... Larry Crabb says in his book, Thus saith the Lord is replaced with my needs aren't being met. Thus saith the Lord is replaced with my needs aren't being met. Again, it's not that we don't want to be happy. It's not that we don't want to be fulfilled. It's not that our needs shouldn't be met. But the answer is not to abandon God's way. I believe we can have that happiness. I believe we can have that fulfillment. I believe that our needs will be met when we live out the biblical truth. And so with Pastor Chris and Pastor Steve and myself over the next five or six weeks, we're going to be sharing the teaching and looking at various aspects, particularly from the New Testament, of how this is supposed to work. And how it is we can be fulfilled. How it is we can be happy. How it is we can have our needs met. Now, the second thing I want to deal with just, just briefly is our source of authority. Our source of authority. James P. Ekman, a, an ethicist, a Christian ethicist, says this, that ethics offers us two choices. First is objective choice seen in absolutes. The second is subjectivism, which is seen in cultural relativism, situation ethics, and behaviorism. One says that God is sovereign over life, death, and sexuality. Objective truth, absolutism says that God is sovereign over life, death, and sexuality. The other says that man is sovereign over life, death, and sexuality. Therefore, man can choose to put to death a baby in abortion. Man can choose to end a life too soon in euthanasia. And a person can choose their sexuality. You see, that one says that man is sovereign over life. Man is sovereign over life and death and sexuality, whereas objective truth says that God is sovereign over life and death and sexuality. 
Cultural relativism centers on what culture believes, that culture has the power to decide what is right and wrong. Thus, culture or man is sovereign. There are no absolutes to guide individuals. There are no universal moral standards, and cultural relativism leads to individual relativism. Thus, ultimately, truth is determined by the individual. That should not be true for you and for me as believers in Jesus Christ. As Christians, Ekman goes on, we believe in ethical, as, eth, ethical absolutes found in the Word of God. Ethical absolutes found in the Word of God. As another writer states it, any discussion about marriage any discussion about its definition, its participants, and how it works best starts with a simple premise. Society doesn't define marriage. God does. So we start a study of marriage with creation, particularly the twin pillars of Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, chapter 2, verses 18 to 20. One more thing. This is, this is just background. Uh, one more thing. We better hurry or we'll get nothing but background this morning. So, the next thing is this. There are people who want to diminish the Genesis account of creation by making it simply an allegory. That is, there are those who look at the early chapters of Genesis especially and say, well, they're not real time and space history. That's just an allegory. Uh, it's, a, it's a religious story told to teach a moral truth. A religious story taught to teach a moral or religious truth. Well, let me give you some reasons why Genesis, and especially the early chapters of Genesis, are not simply an allegory, because that doesn't square with what the rest of the Bible teaches. Number one, Adam is listed in extensive genealogies in Genesis 5, 1 Chronicles 1, and Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 28. Adam is listed in those genealogies. You know what I mean by the genealogies, the begats? You know, so-and-so begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so. You know that portion of Scripture. It's the one we skip when we're reading through the Bible in a year. Right? We're going to skip to the good stuff. Don't want to spend time on this so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so. But the point is, those lists, those genealogies are not a mixture of fictitious people and real people. They are all real people, and yet Adam is included among them. So Adam was a real time and space and history person. Not just a figment of some theologian's imagination to teach a religious truth. He and Eve are real time, space, history people. In the Luke genealogy that I mentioned a moment ago, Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 28, Luke begins with Jesus and goes all the way back to Adam. Now, no one questions that Jesus lived. Jesus was real. Jesus was a historical personage. After all, Jesus changed our calendar. Jesus is surely a man of history, and secular historians agree that Jesus was a man of history. 
They will disagree about other things about him, but they agree that he was a man of history. Well, if Luke begins with Jesus and going all the way back to Adam, if one is historical, the other is historical. If one is historical, that is if Jesus is, and he's in the same genealogy with Adam, then Adam must be historical. The second thing I want you to see, Jesus treats the Genesis account as historical in Matthew chapter 19 and Mark chapter 10, where he refers to the twin pillars of marriage. So Jesus treats the early chapters of Genesis as time and space history, as historical. Paul treats the Genesis account of creation as historical, number three, with references to Adam and Eve and the fall. He references them in Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Corinthians 11, and 1 Timothy chapter 2. It doesn't stop there, folks. Next, Jude and John also have references to these things in Jude 14 and 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12. The book of Hebrews treats the early chapters of Genesis the same way in Hebrews chapter 11. You remember in Hebrews chapter 11, it's the hall of faith of those people that God has acknowledged for their faith. So, it will not do to dismiss Genesis by making it simply an allegory. It is not an allegory. It is not an allegory. It is time and space history. Now, on some other time, we'll argue about how many years, okay? We can get into that another time. But for now, I want you to understand that the Bible Old and New Testament treat Adam and Eve and the other events of the, of the book of Genesis, particularly the early chapters, as real time and space history. Well, Eugene Peterson says this about marriage. When I talk with people who come to me in preparation for marriage, I often say weddings are easy, marriages are difficult. The couple want to plan a wedding, I want to plan a marriage. They want to know where the bridesmaids will stand, I want to develop a plan for forgiveness. They want to discuss the music of the wedding, I want to talk about the emotions of the marriage. I can do a wedding in 20 minutes with my eyes shut. A marriage takes year after year of alert, wide-eyed attention. Marriages, however, are complex and difficult. In marriage, we work out in every detail of life the promises and commitments spoken at the wedding. In marriage, we develop the long and rich life of faithful love that the wedding announces. The event of the wedding without the life of marriage doesn't amount to much. So, what happened? You see, as we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, and look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, we're going to see that what God did was provide for the loneliness needs of human beings. He provided for the loneliness needs of human beings through this relationship called marriage. And in it, he established a relationship of oneness 
not just the oneness of the physical relationship of marriage, but oneness in other ways, making two become one. A relationship of blessing. But something happened. Something happened to make marriage a difficult thing. Let's look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. You see, Genesis 1.28 talks about the crowning glory of God's creation, and that is human beings. Human beings are the crowning glory of God's creation. Nowhere else does it say, God said, let us make. In every other instance where God created, He said, let the earth produce. When it comes to the creation of human beings, God says, let us make man in our image. Many believe that that's a reference to the Trinity. It is possible. It at least allows for the Trinity. However, it may be nothing more than a Hebrew plural of majesty, which is uh, 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 just a, a term of the majestic nature of the one being referred to. I think there's a little of each there. It's a plural of majesty to speak of God's majesty, but I think it's also a hint of the Trinity. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. We are made, human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. No other part of creation is made in the image and likeness of God. You and I are made in the image of likeness of God. Even in our fallen nature, we are still bearing the image and likeness of God. What does that mean? It means that we are rational beings. We have the ability to think abstractly. What does it mean? It means that we are moral beings. We are morally responsible. We have a moral consciousness. What does it mean to be made in the image and likeness of God? It means that we are a spiritual being, having a spirit, having the capacity to worship and to love God. We alone of all creation are made in the image and likeness of God. What does it mean? It means that we have dominion over all the earth and its fullness. We learn in the New Testament that dominion was compromised by the fall. But it wasn't... It will, excuse me, it will be regained later. We are made of dust like much of the rest of God's creation, but the difference in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, is that we are told that we are made, and in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, we are told that we are made of dust that God breathed the life into. We alone, God breathed life into. We are a unique creation now, I want you to notice another thing here. God blessed them. Uh, excuse me, first, verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. All humanity is male or female. All humanity, according to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, is male or female. One writer put it this way, with this, all humanity is male or female with the sexes complementary to each other, with the essential being, with the essential feature being the possibility of pregnancy. See, that's the uniqueness of marriage. It is one male, one man to one woman with the possibility of pregnancy. Because God blessed human beings with the ability to cooperate with him by populating the earth. That takes a man and a woman. Another writer said, male and female are distinct and are meant to be distinct. This point is brought out, in clear, uh, out clearly later in chapter 2 when Genesis speaks of the male being united to the female. The passage explicitly uses the Hebrew words for male and female, making it unambiguously clear that sexual differences within humanity are to be seen as good, as a good and God-given thing as a good and God-given thing. Victor P. Hamilton said this, God created us with gender, male or female. Our gender is given us by God and is not incidental to who we are, but is essential to who we are. God creates human, humankind in His image, in His likeness. Verse 27 clearly states that the distinction of the sexes, male and female, is also of divine origin. One's sexuality is far from a biological accident. Gordon J. Wenham said this, male and female highlights the sexual distinctions within mankind and foreshadows the blessing of fertility. Richard J. Foster said, our human sexuality, our maleness and femaleness is not just an accidental arrangement of the human species, not just a convenient way to keep the human race going, no, it is at the center of our true humanity. We exist as male and female in relationship. See, Genesis 1, 26 to 28 says that we were, are created to procreate. The reason for the distinction of the sexes is seen in verse 28. God blesses us with the ability to participate with him in the creative act, one of the divine purposes of marriage is procreation. Now, I should mention one thing, and I just want to mention this in passing. When God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase, that many people take as a strict imperative. That is, a, it is a command that you should have as many children as your body possibly can. That's not the kind of imperative this is. Uh, and if if you are of the mind that you want to have as many children as you possibly can, I support you in that. I think that's fantastic. But the Bible isn't commanding that. Some people take that as a command. Uh, it's not a command. It's, a, it's an imperative of promise. 
which is not a command to humans, but rather it is an imperative that shows that God has shared with us the, his procreating nature. Our ability to procreate is something that is a blessing from God. And what he's saying here by pre, be fruitful and increase in number is that God wants us to partake in this blessing. God wants us to partake in this blessing. Well, in Genesis chapter 2, 7, we have a creation account. Now, Genesis 1 was kind of the global look. Uh, you know, it's like going up to uh, you, you pilots. Uh, you don't, don't, don't nail me for this. Uh, it's like going up to 30 or 35,000 feet. Is that okay? Okay, thank you. Uh, and and uh, you, can, you can see an awful lot. Or let me put it another way. Suppose you're at the Macy Thanksgiving Day Parade and you're high up in a blimp. You can see one end of the parade to the other. But those people on the street level, they're seeing what? They're seeing each thing, as it, each display as it's going by. Well, Genesis 1 is the balloon in the sky or the 30,000 or 35,000 feet flight whereas Genesis 2 is the street view and expresses the creation of Eve and Adam in, Adam in verse 7 and Eve later. We read, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. It goes on to explain about God planting a garden in the east in Eden and then in verse 18 we read this, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, in Genesis 2.18, Adam's aloneness is cited. And as one writer put it, man needs a helper to care for the garden and provide support in a general sense. But in the light of the importance of the blessing of chapter 1 and verse 28, that is the blessing of procreation, most likely the help envisioned, now listen to this, most likely the help envisioned is in the bearing of children. Adam was not able to bear children by himself. If he was going to complete God's design for him, there would have to be one corresponding to him. And that's all it means. That's what the word helper means. One who corresponds to him. One with whom he can be face-to-face -face and have a face-to-face -face relationship with. So the help envisioned, as this writer says, may be in the bearing of children. Furthermore, the writer says, the woman's judgment, that is the judgment following the fall, relates specifically to her role in bearing children. Well, before the creation of Eve, Adam enjoyed the privileges of a relationship with God, the privileges of provision of all his needs, yet he was alone. And God determines that without companionship, Adam's situation is not good. So he determines, determines to make a helper suitable, that is one corresponding to him. The way that God prepared Adam for that, and I don't have time to read all of this, but you can read Genesis chapter 2. The way God prepared Adam for that is by telling him to name all the animals. Now, 
that tells us a lot of things. It tells us that Adam was, was created with intelligence. It says that Adam had the wisdom to determine all the names of all the various animals. But there's the reason that God did this as he asked Adam to name the animals and, and brought the animals in front of Adam. And there was Mr. and Mrs. Cow. And there was Mr. and Mrs. Dog. There was Mr. and Mrs. Cat. Mr. and Mrs. Aardvark. And so on and so forth. What is Adam supposed to get out of that? No Mrs. Adam. No Mrs. Adam. He was alone. In a perfect setting, perfect relationship with God, he was alone. And it wasn't good. In a creation that was called very good in chapter 1, it wasn't good that Adam should be alone. And God demonstrated his aloneness to him in that way. Now the Lord God, verse 19 of chapter 2, had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. I, I want to put to bed this whole idea that a helper suitable for him means somebody inferior to him, somebody subordinate to him. A helper suitable simply means one who corresponds to him. One who corresponds to him. The word helper or help is found in the Psalms in reference to God himself. If, it's, if we say it's inferior to say that Eve is a helper, one corresponding to him, then we have to say that, it's, that it makes God inferior if he's our helper. And obviously that's not true. That would be heresy. That would be heresy. God determines to make a helper suitable for Adam. Then we read how it was done. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep and we have the first surgery ever. While he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs. By the way, ribs is a, is a nice uh, way to put it. Literally in Hebrew, it means blood, tissue, and bone. God reached into Adam's side and pulled out some blood and tissue and bone. Not a rib. Well, there could have been some rib meat there. I don't know. But at any rate, uh, it wasn't just a rib. And out of that, he took, he took one of the man's ribs, as the NIV translates it, closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, oh, wow, I can't believe it. That's kind of a literal rendering of the Hebrew there. I can't believe it. Or as Perry Como sang, hot diggity dog. <laughs> For some reason, Kathy and I were thinking about that song this morning. Hot diggity dog diggity boom, what you do to me. Anyhow. <laughs> hot diggity dog, that's what Adam said. I can't believe it. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman. And so he names Eve, and he later names her Eve in chapter 2. 
three rather, excuse me. And um, she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will be called one flesh. Now, there's several implications here uh, of, of what marriage is and we find God's definition of marriage right here in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. There is the leaving of one relationship. There is the leaving of one relationship. When a man and a woman marry, they, they don't break relationship with their mother and dad, but they leave that relationship. That is, it's not the same anymore. They're Mother and dad don't have control over them anymore. They are their own family. Now, they should go to their mother and dad for wisdom. They should go to their mother and dad for, for uh, advice. There should be that kind of relationship. But from the day of marriage on, the primary relationship between man and woman is between them. Not with them and their parents. I'm years ago in an earlier ministry at another place. Did I keep it uh, under wraps enough? In an earlier ministry, I had done premarital counseling with a couple and I had married them. But his parents never wanted the marriage and worked until they broke them up. There's more sadness in that story that I'd love to tell you, but I'm not going to. For this reason, a man leaves his father and mother. When you get married, you leave that previous relationship. The number one relationship in your life after that is to your mate. To your mate. For this reason, a man leaves his father and mother. He'll be united to his wife. That means to stick like glue. It means to become their number one cheerleader. You see, verse 24 says that we should be number one in each other's lives. It says that we shouldn't let anything or anyone separate us. Be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. And that's an obvious reference to the physical one flesh relationship, which is an illustration of one flesh emotionally, one flesh in other ways as well, and ultimately one flesh resulting in a, a child so that the idea behind the Hebrew here is they become one blood. Of one blood. Well, verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And you, you say to yourself, well, what does that have to do with anything? Where, where did that come from? Well, Genesis 2.25 mentions that Adam and Eve were both naked and unashamed. The physical nudity symbolized their total transparency and their total ease with one another. There was no fear, no distrust because of the absence of sin, which wouldn't be a factor until after the fall in Genesis 3. 
There was no competition, no defensiveness, no need to win, no battle for control, no fear of exploitation. One writer said that verse 25 is a poignant reminder of all that was lost in the fall. Where before they did not look upon each other with competitiveness or defensiveness or the need to win or the battle for control, after the fall in Genesis 3, all of those things became true because the first thing that happened to Adam and Eve after they ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil is they knew that they were naked. You say, well, what does that have to do with it? What it means is they now knew fear. They now knew they could be exploited. They now knew they were in competition. They now knew they had to be defensive. They now knew that they were in a battle to win and a battle for control. That's what was lost in the fall. And particularly in the fall, what was lost was the ease of the relationship between Adam and Eve and between all married couples after that. You see, I don't, have, I don't have time to go into it. You remember what happened when the serpent came to Adam and Eve, and particularly Eve, and she partook of the fruit and handed it to Adam, who was right next to her. And uh, he partook of the fruit. And God judged them in various ways. He cursed the ground. He put a curse upon man and upon woman and upon the serpent. Verse 16 tells us the curse upon the woman, and it's pertinent to our study this morning, and this is where we'll end. I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Now the next phrase has been so mistaught and misunderstood. Your desire will be for your husband. There are those who teach, well, that, that means her sexual desire will be. She will sexually desire her husband. That is so far from what this means, it's unbelievable. We understand what it means from Genesis chapter 4, where Cain is told, because of his anger, he's told anger is crouching at the door and it desires to have you. That's the same Hebrew word. Now what does that mean? It desires to have you. It means that anger desires to control you. You see, what God is saying in His judgment here is there will be a battle for dominance between you and your husband. There will be a battle for control of the family. And so it began. That's what happened to marriage. That's what makes it difficult today. But there are answers to that. God didn't leave us without help. And there are many passages, particularly in the New Testament, that we're going to look at through uh, Pastor Steve and Pastor Chris and myself for the next couple of weeks that will hopefully answer that question. You and I in marriage, do not have to live at the level of the fall. If your marriage is nothing but battle for control and battle for dominance and a battle right and left, then you are at living at the level of Genesis 3. 
And you ought to be living at the level of Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 3 and Ephesians 5 and many other passages, some of which we'll look at over the next weeks. That's what happened to the marriage relationship. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we do thank you. We do thank you for sending your son Jesus to Calvary's cross so that we could be restored to you through him. For his willingness to die in our place and take our sins on his innocent body. And as we yield control of our lives to your spirit, as we first put our faith in your son Jesus Christ, as we grow in the grace and knowledge of him, we can live in our relationships and particularly the relationship of marriage above the fall. Help us to do that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.